Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Talk Recorded live. What is up, everybody? Welcome to Travis and Vic's Drunken Horror Adventures tonight. Uh, it's Travis and Blake's Drunken Horror Adventures once again. I'm drinking that fireball. I feel like shit, but I'm here, and I am not queer. But Blake's not queer either. What's up, Blake? <laughs> wow. Uh, what's going on, sir? Uh, it's good to talk to you, man. I appreciate you coming on. And, uh, you know, I feel less bad than I expected to. It's uh, proceeded from my chest and throat into my nose currently. So uh, the plague hit my house last weekend, and I really didn't get hit with it till like, two days ago. But, oh, well, fuck it, I'm here. Yes, you're here, and, uh, and, and that counts for something because you're still giving your moral support. You're still here. You're still running the show, and, and you're doing it sick. So uh, more power to you. You get you get four hunting knives, four Freddy gloves for me. How about that? <laughs> I appreciate that, buddy. It, you know, and I'm excited about this one too. I've got a lot of opinions about this one. This I think I think I only saw two of the Scream movies in theater. Scream three, and then Scream four. I barely remember seeing Scream three in the theater, which we we discussed last week. It was a little bit disappointing. You know, not terrible. You know, third entry into a series, but not the greatest either. Um, and now we're going to talk about Scream 4, which, you know, um, it's about six years old now, uh, six and a half years old, nah, six years and four months. But um, this was a movie that came out April 15, 2011. I know I was there opening weekend with Vic and Madman Pondo. He's a wrestler uh, who yeah. also has been in uh, a thousand, what was it, a thousand one maniacs. A thousand one maniacs, Robert Englund. Yep. Yeah, he was in the first one. Pondo was in the first one. Yeah, we watched the movie with him. So. <laughs> that had to be a good time. <laughs> oh, yeah. Pondo, Pondo's a horror movie lover. And what's funny, though, is that I can get him riled up because I start getting him to talk about uh, Children of the Corn, which he hates. <laughs> it's just funny to me. Yeah. Like, I don't know. We all have our movies that just piss us off. But anyway, so Scream 4, like I said, 2011, it gets a 6.2 on IMDb. It is the highest rated sequel of the series. Um, obviously, the original gets the highest rating. I think it's 7.2. But Screen 4, it kind of had mixed reviews, and it didn't do that great at the box office. And not to give anything away, but that's pretty much why we never got to Screen 5. That and the fact that uh, our, our beloved Wes Craven passed away due to brain cancer. And God, he's so missed. And, and you know, when I watch this movie, I, again, I just get – because this was his last movie, you know? Yeah, it, it was. And, and he'll be – he is one – uh, just like Romero, just like Hitchcock, just like Carpenter, and so many of the others that are our favorites, Toby Hooper and Todd Barker, he is one that will be missed and cannot be replaced. There is no replacement for the kind of uh, talent uh, that he had. There is no replacement for his kind of vision. And he, he was a pioneer. Uh, and, and I mean that in, in not, you know, kind of like lip service, but I really, really honestly mean that. I mean, as somebody who wrote an origin story for one of his first characters 
and got to talk about it in front of thousands of people at a at a convention on a panel and sell books and and talk about what Freddy Krueger as a character did to me. I just I was blown away and it was bittersweet because I was so happy to be there with all our friends, you know, Nick Benson, Nick Strong and all the others, but I was so sad because Wes wasn't, you know, around anymore. And and it was just kind of bittersweet. But I, I sang for a you know, a last film. This one was a pretty good way to go out. Oh yeah, I think I think we can agree on that. You know, um not to go too far back to our West Craven tribute, but when I listen to him on these commentaries for these movies, like, okay, so John Carpenter, I think he's the best horror director ever. Romero's right there with him. But Wes Craven, he's the type of guy, um, even though I'd put him probably number two or number three of the best ever, I would like to have a beer with him more than anybody else as far as horror directors because he just seems like a cooler guy than the rest of them. I don't know what it is about him, but he seems like such a down-to-earth person. Um, and it's just yeah. so smart. Yeah, I mean, like, I love the guy. I, I, I think he... I think I appreciate him more now than whenever we did the tribute show. So, you know, um, well, you know, it's a weird story about him. You know, I mean, he was a humanities professor. So, you know, you got to talk, you know, you just talked about how intellectual, how intelligent, how, you know, gifted and skilled he was. And then he, you know, had this incredible, this incredible tendency to persevere in light of, of, of obstacles. I mean, he got all of his movies that he wanted to get made, you know, that, that he that he actually was involved with. He got them all made. Uh, whether the MPAA or not, you know, tried to put them on the setting board is, is a different story. But, but you know, he got all his movies made, and he was such a gentleman. I mean, Robert England, Robert England talks about what a gentleman he was, and everybody that's ever worked with Wes talked about how what a great, warming, down-to-earth, charming, funny person he was and and he, he'll definitely be missed so I mean I don't know about you but I'd like to dedicate this show to his memory seeing as how it was the last film offering that we got from him there was one other that was supposed to come out posthumously but I am not sure that it's that it's going to make it out I think it was called The Girl in the Photographs or something it was it's something he was supposed to be working on at the time of his death but I don't know if we'll ever see it so if we don't I'd like to dedicate this one to his memory since it's the last film that we widely received from him, you know. And it's well-deserved, too. I mean, the guy, you know, I, I talk heavily in the Scream series about how important the writers were on this, but let's face it. I mean, without the one-two combo, these movies wouldn't have been what they were. And 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 um, while Craven was on all four movies, I mean, none of these movies have dipped below 2.5 for any of us, and that's pretty good so far. We'll see absolutely, absolutely, especially considering sequels, you know, to paraphrase Randy Biggs, suck and by definition they're inferior films to the first film and, and, and I mean considering that nobody didn't play a 2.5 and that they all made even at worst millions and millions and millions. Every one of them made back the budget at least two to three times over and, and that's a hell of an accomplishment for, for anybody. I mean even the one we're talking about tonight, Screen 4 you know like you said was released April 14th or April 15th rather 2011 it had a budget of forty million and made back ninety seven point one upwards of a hundred and one million in other markets. That's that's pretty, pretty pretty successful, you know. Pretty pretty successful. Yeah, it was, it was just the US that really didn't support it like they should have. I don't know what it is, uh, you know, about the US market with this movie. But that's why, you know, the Friday thirteenth never got made it was because of the ring you know, the ring sequel didn't do well, so 
I don't know, man. I don't know where Hoover's going. I think it was the release date was bad luck. Uh, April 15th is the day the Titanic sank. So I think think April 15th is kind of like a curse, you know, curse for, for things because, I mean, just to think about how popular, how wildly popular the first three were in the United States and abroad and then to see the disappointing reception in the U.S. for the fourth one. I mean, we waited over 10, you know, 10 years to get the, uh, to get another one. We were under the, you know, assumption there weren't going to be any other ones, and that one kind of surprised me. I did not see any of them in theaters, but I did see all of them on VHS and DVD, you know, whatever it was they were on as they came out. I think I saw Scream 4 on DVD, but I saw the other three when they were rentals at, you know, Hollywood Video, which yeah. is selling my age, you know. <laughs> Yeah, it's um, it's weird too because like, and we'll get into this, but when I see the characters in this movie, you can tell like if you watch the first three movies like we did, you know, back to back to back, and then you watch Scream Four, you can tell they've aged. Maybe if you watch Scream Four by itself, you really don't think that they look that old. But if you compare it to the other movies we watched, you know, it's like Jesus, you know, you don't see that too often with a sequel, especially, uh, you know, ten years later after a third one where everybody's – you still got the same cast, and they're just old. It doesn't happen much. Well, that, that is true, but I think aside from the second film, Courtney Cox looks her best in them as she ever did. Yep, that I agree. Gorgeous. And Dewey, you know, the character of Dewey has dropped some weight and grown a thicker mustache and become more of a badass. And, and you know, uh, and then you got, you know, Sid, of course, she's – She's a seasoned, seasoned lady, you know, a beautiful woman with a lot of just intensity in her face. I mean, look at what she's been through, for Christ's sake, you know? Yeah, exactly. Hey, Vic's on the line. What's up, Vic? Hey, Vic. What's up, people? What's up, folks? Yeah, we were just kind of talking about how, you know, like when I listen to Wes Craven on these commentaries and stuff, and the fact that, uh, well, it makes me miss Wes Craven that much more than that I like him. As a, you know, like, okay, I talked about how Carpenter and Romero, I think, are the greatest horror directors, but Craven, he's the one I want to sit down and have a beer with the most. You know what I mean? He just seems like a good guy. The other ones aren't so down to earth. I mean, Romero a little bit, but he's a little too political for me. Yeah, so. no doubt about it. He, he just always seemed like, the, like a cool cat. Yeah, and we were also talking about the poor box office, at least in the U.S. of Screen 4. You and I saw it opening weekend with Pondo, like I was talking about earlier, and I don't get it. I'll never understand why this movie didn't do well. I don't, I, you know what I think, honestly? I think if Scream was released in this generation, I still think it would I, I think it would do just as well as Scream 4, and not that well, uh, at least in the U.S., because I think we're a bunch of, or this generation is a bunch of uh, cynical assholes. Yeah, I mean, you're probably right, and that's stupid. But I think yeah. that's what it is. Because there actually are mixed reviews on this movie, which we'll give our reviews about it later. I, I should let Blake go ahead and get into things, since uh, uh, I was I, he was kind enough to uh, go ahead and take over the uh, rundown duties this week after he did a hell of a job on Screen 3 last week. I'm much appreciated. I appreciate that. But like I said, it's all to help you guys, and you guys have helped me with my career, and you know, been a big supporter of my work, and I love your stuff, and that was my first adventure into the podcasting and broadcasting world, so I'm proud to do any favorites for you that I can. So let's get into this. And uh, what we start with is 
you know, sort of a little bit different than, than what we've started with before. You sort of get this opening where you've got two girls, you know, that appear to be high school age, uh, chatting and hanging out of the house, and they don't really have a care of the world. And and then you all of a sudden uh, get, you know, you get the phone, you know, they discuss movies and how they don't want to watch whatever it was or whatever. And they're talking about the movies are like, horror movies now are just like torture porn and they're just disgusting. There's not really a story, this, that, and the other. And then you get the obligatory phone call and it's Ghostface. It's the return of Roger L. Jackson and the Ghostface voice. And, uh, you know, the threatening and all this other kind of stuff ensues. And then something that's not been in the other films is the other girl, is talking on Facebook to someone who is apparently some sort of a stalker to her who's posting like chest pics and you know you know just all these muscle bound pics and the other the other girl says that uh that's well, totally changed and this that and the other and it kind of automatically kind of takes you into this more modern age because we've got Facebook and we've got cell phones with the you know the smart stuff and all the apps and that's not something that we had in the original Scream trilogy, so obviously technology has improved. Um, yeah, I was going to say, you can tell that this movie is, like, modern as opposed to when we watched the, the original Scream, and, you know, they've got cordless right. telephones. Oh, yeah, it's completely, got, completely modernized. I mean, well, right. modern as 2011 was, even now, some of the stuff that they did that was top of the line then is kind of antiquated as far as, social media and all this other kind of stuff. So, and, and you know, the the phone rings and then the girl is like, you know, I don't know, she's just up, you know, just getting visibly annoyed because the call, the same caller, Ghostface calls back and is like, who is this? And she's like, I'm the more patient version of the person you just talked to. And all this, and I think he said something like, you don't have to be a bitch about it. And then she's like, she <laughs> yeah. hangs up. And, and then, yeah. <laughs> And then the stalker sends a message to the other girl in question and says, answer the phone, because it's continuing to ring, and that's kind of creepy. So automatically that sets the tone. It's like, oh, shit, something's about to happen. So very much in the same spirit as the original three films, with that sort of foreboding, sudden, kind of uncomfortable, eerie, creepy feeling. And then... Uh, she's like, well, you know, she finally answers it again, and then this time she hands it to the other girl. She's like, and he talks to Ghostface, and she's like, who's this? And he's like, this is the last person you're ever going to see alive. And just doing his normal asshole Ghostface, I'm going to, you know, talk to you like shit and threaten you and make you feel terrible and confuse you and scare you and all that. So he's up to his all tricks, and he's like, why'd you hand the phone to me? You know, and all this and that. And then the doorbell rings. And she goes to answer it, the, the other girl. And they open the door, and there's nothing there. And then the Facebook stalker sends a text saying, I'm right beside you. And then, <laughs> and obviously, the next thing is Ghostface, fully robed in the same original Ghostface outfit, jumps out from this white doorway and stabs the hell out of the one girl. And <laughs> it's just blood everywhere. And then they go after the other girl and stab her. And 
Then we get two ghost faces too, right? I mean, yeah, this you is get like, two ghost faces. Yeah, yeah it, 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 I remember. I remember seeing that at the time, and I was like, this is fucking cool. We know right from the start there's two killers. And then we see what happens. Yeah, it's, it's just really weird that you get to see two ghost faces like that. And and it's clear that it's not the same person because of the angles and where the, the positioning of the killer and the victims are. So after that, you feel like, whoa, I saw two ghost faces. And the next thing you see is all of a sudden you hear this flashing sound, and you see stab six and you're like well shit that was like a movie trailer or the beginning of a movie so then it, it cuts to uh what is it Kristen Bell and Anna Paquin and yeah two, Anna Paquin from Trick or Treat and True Blood and True Blood yeah and uh and then Kristen Bell who was in uh was it Monica Mars she's been a lot of shit yeah and she's been in a bunch of things but they're both sitting on the couch and apparently Anna Paquin is not having it. She's like, I'm so over this. Really? A fucking Facebook killer? And then Kristen Bell responds, well, I guess it would be Twitter now. And, and at that point, I was watching it, and I was like, oh, my God. Here we are with the damn social media. Because I'm, I'm all about, like, to hell with Twitter anyway. Yeah. So, so you get that. And then all it is is basically this scene is a rundown of Anna Paquin telling Kristen Bell's character, why those movies are terrible and and the whole postmodern deconstructed shit has been done and all this and that and Kristen Bell is getting clearly irritated <laughs> at this rambling diatribe, I guess, for lack of a better word, that uh, Anna Paquin is on about the horror movie thing. So, so and, and I think that the next slide is one of my favorites. It's not about do- dolls or possession or little ghost girls there's just something about a killer with a nut you know that with a knife set and then right as she goes to say that uh anna papel pops the top on like a soda a soda can or something yes and then it's back into this diatribe about how the movie's terrible and she's like there's just no element of surprise and then all of a sudden out of nowhere Kristen Bell pulls this big-ass kitchen knife out and stabs Anna Paquin right in the stomach. She's like, were you expecting that? Did that surprise you? <laughs> and you're like, what the hell is this? Because she's sitting there and, like, making all these gurgling noises and why. And I was like, just, I was like yeah. well, damn, this is a different movie altogether again. You know what I'm saying? Like, I felt like, all right, cool. I kind of like it. We know who the killer is right from the start. It's not a whodunit like the other three. And then here we go again. Yeah, and then yeah, and then like you said, there we go again, back into the thrown back into it again, and she she's like, you know, so what I want you to do now is just shut the fuck up and watch the movie, and she just stabs her a couple more times, and she finally just dies next to her. How many people if you wanted to do this to at a theater or elsewhere? I know there's a lot right. of mine. I probably right. have a list. <laughs> Um, I just tend to not even watch movies in the theaters anymore because even kids' movies that I go to, you know, with my fam, with my kids, I just yeah. half of the time it's like listening to the people in the front row and behind just argue and holler, and it takes away from the experience to me. You know, they're all like, "Go out to the movies, you know, it'll be good for you." Oh yeah, real good. I go spend double the money and get half the movie that I pay for because I spend the other. I like going time. to the drive-in. I'm good with the drive I've, I've never been, yeah, but we... there's one down the road for me, and I'm trying to figure out actually how that's going to work uh, because they say tune your car radio to the station, but what car can you leave on for like two and a half, for like an hour and a half while the movie's on? 
Uh, you can usually leave the battery on and you're okay. It's it's but they they do have speakers at the one uh, we go to also. So okay, I, I don't know if they have speakers at this one or not. I know they're showing Annabelle, the new Annabelle film. Uh, I heard it's really fucking good too. By the way, I I've heard half before. and half. Half the people I know have seen it and say it's terrible. The other half think it's awesome. So I'll just say. You know, reserve judgment till I see it. But you know, anyway, we'll find I out. yeah, um, we'll find out. You know, like you said, whether it's good or bad. But anyway, so it goes now. All of a sudden, after Anna Paquin's murder, and you see the credits for Stab Seven, and you're like, well, "What the hell is this? It's a movie within a movie within a movie. What is this? This is not something we've seen before." So now we're with these again two kind of you know bubbly high school girls talking about films, and the one, I think her name is Marnie, she's like, I don't get it, you know, and then the other one, Jenny, you know, Randall is like, well, it's just, it's, you know, sort of like a commentary on what happened in Woodsboro, and it's this, that, and the other, and she's like, well, that stuff didn't really happen here, and then where we as the audience are like, yeah, it totally did, she's like, well, weren't these things supposed to be based on something like that that happened around here, and she's like, yeah, uh, after, like, the third or fourth one, it kind of drifted away, and then she said, Stab 5 has time travel, which is absolutely the worst. And I'm like, what the hell? I was sitting there thinking, what the hell kind of storyline could you do with time travel? And At least it never went to space. It could yeah. Have been or face Freddy Krueger, or, yeah. you know, whoever else, whatever. Um, so you're like, okay, that's kind of weird. And then they, there's a noise in the house from upstairs as they're discussing this and Jenny, the brave one, goes upstairs um, to uh, investigate the noise and leaves Marnie downstairs by herself. I'm like, that's a real good fucking friend for you. You know, leave your friend down here and I'll go check the noise. So then Marnie gets a phone call and it's Ghostface. But it asks, after an exchange, she realizes because I guess Jenny laughs that Jenny's using the Ghostface voice app on her phone, which is again something that did not exist in the first three films. So you're like, now there's an app where you can anybody can sound like Ghostface. So that sort of and it still disturbs me that it's like, all right, it'd be like having a Ted Bundy app, which would be fucking sweet. Don't get me wrong, but you know what I'm saying? It's based on a real killer and real killings, and they have this thing, and it's just, oh, that's fine. You can get an app and you can act like a. a it's just, you know, when you think about it from like. If you're in that film, that's fucked up. Well, true. Very true. I mean, it's, it's, <laughs> yeah, I just was like, wow, that's crazy. Uh, and kind of, you know, disconcerting, too. So, after all that, you you hear uh, Jenny talking to Marnie on the phone, and then the phone call gets cut off, and Marnie makes some kind of awful, like, gurgling noise and, like, screams, and then it's silence, dead end. You know, she looks like phone. she looks a little bit like uh, what's her name, the chick uh, who plays Hit Girl and uh, Kick Ass, and she was in Let, she was in Carrie and Let Me In. Uh, what's that chick's name? Uh, uh, I didn't played Carrie. Uh, Chloe Grace Moretz. Yeah, that she looked like her except with blonde hair. Not that she never had blonde hair, but still. Yeah. Yeah. So. You get the noise, and then all of a sudden you go back down. You know, you follow Jenny back downstairs, and 
she's like, good job, Marnie. That's super awesome. You know, you should direct a horror movie or, you know, be a director. And then the timing, so she gets a phone call or a text message or something, and the timing is good for something else happens. And she's like, the timing is just perfect. And then you get the, the phone call, which is great. It's Ghostface. And from the context of the conversation, you know. Do you, know, do you notice she says, uh, is this Trevor? And so, okay, all right, so I hate to skip ahead. She says, is this Trevor? Later on, like in the movie, whenever we meet Sydney's cousin, and we'll get there, I realize. I don't, I don't mean to go so far ahead, but I just don't want to forget. Like, Sydney, or, uh, her cousin Jill, she said that um, that Trevor left her for another chick. Mm-hmm. Would it be this chick, maybe? I don't know, because Trevor called Olivia, he called Kirby, he called this uh, Jenny, he called all kind of different girls outside of of Jill, so I really don't know, yeah. as we find out I later. That's really interesting to think about, you know? Yeah, and Ghostface is like, no, this isn't thing. fucking Trevor, you know, and all this other kind of stuff. Dude, that's fucking great. That's such a good fucking moment. But it, yeah, it go ahead. And, Sorry. And it's, uh, it's fantastic because she's like, She's like, well, where's what'd you do with Marnie? And she's like, Marnie, uh, Marnie's parts are on the cutting room floor. Her role got cut way back. And she's like, that's not, you know, this, that, and the other. She gets pissed off and then scared. She's like, oh, what did she do with her? Tell me that, this, that, and the other. And it just, she's getting all pissed off because he's like having fun with it. He's very almost Freddy Krueger in like Nightmare Three and Four with the, she's on the cutting room floor. You know, her part got cut way, way back, and all the, the lines, the one-liners. Ghostface is good for that. Um, Dude, I love I love Ghostface in this movie, and I realize it's weird saying Ghostface like it's one person because we know it's multiple people sometimes. But yeah. um, I love Ghostface in this movie. Like, I don't know, Roger Jackson's voice is kind of the same, but there's something about the dialogue that he uses this time around or that they use that's like – Probably the best since maybe the first one. Oh yeah, it's it's weird. He does something totally He's more different. violent. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And then he gets a little bit more vulgar too. He's like, but you, you're, you're the blonde with the big tits, so we'll have fun yeah. with you before you die. You know, he's like, hey asshole, I have a 4.0 GPA and 136 IQ. You know, whatever she's taunting, trying to taunt him, and then. There's an exchange where he is bust, you know, the glass down and throws Marnie's body into this glass window, which is very reminiscent of like Friday the Thirteenth. Mm-hmm. You gotta you know, get the the, every Friday, yeah, every Friday the Thirteenth, somebody gets thrown through a window. Yeah, yeah, but it's just like this is the first time we really see that in the Scream franchise that I can remember. Uh, I'm not talking about Jennifer getting thrown through the closet window, the closet mirror thing in in a Screen three. I'm talking actually through or, the room. or even like Jenny McCarthy getting put through the door. Yeah, right. Yeah, thing. this is the first body getting shut through the window. Yeah, this is the first real outside window like chair jumping scare that we get with uh, the screen franchise. So there's a chase, and Ghostface gets the upper hand as he always does, and he stabs her in the back, and she falls down the stairs and. She's trying to get out through the garage door, and, and she's crawling. Obviously, there's some spine injury there. She's trying to crawl, and he activates the garage door, and it comes down on her, 
and fighting back to turn the spine over and over again, you know. And then finally we see the knife come up, and it's sort of reminiscent of the first scream where you get the up-close of the knife and the up-close of Jenny's terrified expression. And then you hear the knife swing, and then we get the opening credits with some upbeat rock song. And, and the credits are a little different because you see the, like the ghost face, like face, and then you see the stylized scream logo. Like it's it's always stylized on the posters, but it's never stylized in the movie until I think this one, like actually on screen. You know, it's sort of very stylized, just like the box, you know, like you would get on a movie box. So that's really cool. And so that takes us into sunny wherever the hell we are, California, I assume, is where it's supposed to be, back in Woodsboro. And you see that traffic, and you follow this rock song, and then you see this car pull up to this bookstore, and out pops Sydney and her, I guess, handler, her, you know, you know, promoter and handler for her, you know, books. So she gets out, and she's like, so what do you think? And Sid looks around, and on all the lamp posts, there are little mini ghost face. Like, Again, it's fucked up. That would be like having body parts all over Milwaukee. For Dom, yeah, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. It's weird. Yeah, it I mean, we are as, as viewers, but like, right? But, but this reaction crazy. kind of surprised me. Well, it didn't, and it did. She's like, "So, what do you think?" She's like, "Well, it is the anniversary, I guess." So, one, you don't expect her to say that, and two, you kind of expect her to kind of be moving past it a little, but you expect her to still have some semblance of like it bothering her. But at this point, it really doesn't. She's just kind of very blase about it. She's like, no, I mean the display. And then she points, and there's the display. Sid apparently has written a book called Out of Darkness. It's like a story of her triumph through tragedy. And she's on a book tour trying to, you know, on the last stop back home. So that's where you get reintroduced to Sid. She's very distant um, throughout the movie, really. Just her emotions about the whole thing. I mean... In part three, she was like, fuck, here we go again. And this one, she's like, I don't even care anymore. You know what I mean? I guess it's, I don't know, I guess ten years later after you've been through this shit, you just, you know, kind of learn to expect it. Right, right. But there are parts, which we'll get to, where she gets a little bit of that back, especially considering what, the, you know, the targets, the ghost, ghost face new targets are. We which we'll talk about in a few minutes, you know, you see some of that old Sid kind of resurface a little bit. But uh, mm-hmm. at this point, it's like the weirdest line ever. She's like, oh, I told them to do the display like that, or I'd kill her dog or whatever. i kill the owner's dog. And you're like, the hell kind of terrible choke is that, you know, from the assistant? You know, it's just like, Her wow. assistant's hot, though. I just want to say. She had big tits, too. <laughs> Oh, goodness. Travis, are you drinking? Of course you are. Uh, yeah, I've been drinking some Fireball. If I had other whiskey, I'd drink that, but I'm making bad decisions with Fireball. You, you're you making bad decisions because you got a, you know, a throat, you got like a throat crud, and, you know, you can, you know, you're having trouble with your voice if you're imbibing on that, so. That's, yep. Well, you know, you're on the list. All you have to do now is. Well, you know, we know we know you've had sex. We know you've probably drunk, you've drank, obviously. So now all you got to do is say, "I'll be right back." You know, <laughs> everyone's a suspect. Yes, absolutely. Um, if they watch prom night, they'd save time. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
But anyway, so we get back into Sid. We're reacquainted with her. And then I believe, because it's been like, you know, a little bit. I watched the movie last week. But I believe one of the next scenes we get is uh, the school. Isn't it? Uh, yeah. Yeah. No, like, no. You get the phone call, the phone call, or the alarm yeah. clock going off. It's from Beverly Hills Cop. It's the alarm clock, and you don't yeah. know who it is until he pulls the sheets down, and it's Dewey, who's in this pretty house, beautiful house, and he gets out of bed, and right beside him in the bed, who covers herself up and nestles herself under his pillow, is Gail, who is looking just absolutely Gorgeous in this movie. Gail looks beautiful in this movie. Courtney Cox is beautiful. It is beautiful. So it just it was it was nice to see an improvement over the way of her character appeared in the in you know the previous film, which was just was not happening for me. Or you, if I recall correctly, you know you weren't happy with her appearance in Scream Three either. Like no, she looks better in. The- She's older. She's 10 years older, 11 years older, or whatever the case may be, but she looks better in this one than she did in Scream 3, which is pretty amazing to me. All right. Yeah, absolutely. So you step, you know, you see Dewey leave and go outside, and he's driving the car. It says Sheriff. So apparently Sheriff Burke has either retired or died or both, <laughs> passed, you know, passed the torch on to Dewey. Now Dewey's the sheriff. Um, and so he, he gets ready to get in his car, and all of a sudden – he a car like a SUV blows right past him, going probably sixty miles an hour, and he's like, you know, he's he he yells something. Twenty five, stay alive! At this person driving yeah. this SUV, who we're introduced to as Kirby, the girl. Speaking of bad hair, yeah, I didn't like it. Jesus, but, man, I love yeah. being page here, but uh, no, that hair, no, 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 no. That is bad. Yeah, it was pretty rough. But uh, so she's like, shit, sorry, Sheriff. And so you automatically see it's like that because anywhere else, if you were speeding and there was a cop on the street, they'd pull your ass over. And it'd just be, would be what it is. But he kind of lets her go or whatever, which he kind of did in the first film when he was, you know, a deputy. He kind of did the same thing, you know, at the party with the drinks and, you know, all this other stuff. So kind of laid back. So she pulls up to a house, and then we were introduced to uh, Emma Roberts' character, Jill, and she gets in the car, and then she's like, Trevor called me, and then Jill's face, you just see it. There's just, there's some shit. Apparently, this Trevor guy, you know, makes us, you know, another, he's another, you mentioned again, and it's not in a good context, and Jill is like, why, why is he calling you? And she's like, because you won't take his calls, and this, that, and the other. And then another girl comes out of her house and goes to get in the car, and then Jill's like, can we just talk about this later? This other girl gets in, and we're introduced to her. She's Olivia, and she says, Trevor called me last night. And, she's, and then Jill's like, he called you too? And she's just that like around. Yeah, she's just like exasperated with the whole thing. And then uh, they go to drive on, I guess, to, you know, they're going to school, and they talk about things, and then she... <laughs> Kirby's like the worst driver, I guess, in the history of the screen thing besides Mickey and, and Cotton when, you know, when Cotton's driving because she blows right past the stop sign and almost gets like, the car almost gets obliterated by his passing vehicle and they yell out the window, nice job, asshole. 
You know, and I this would have been like end of movie. <laughs> this would have yeah. been it. This would have been the end of the movie. Yes, because the scream and final destination matchup, right? what it would yep. be. Yep. But, yeah, so you kind of get that, and then she's like, you just blew past the stop sign. She's like, I did? Oh, sorry. And she's just so nonchalant about almost like running over the sheriff and almost getting the car completely totaled by another vehicle. Just totally nonchalant and blase about the whole thing. So, on the way to school, we get more of their conversation, and Kirby brings up, so have you seen her yet? Who? She's like your cousin, you know. Like, the angel no. of death. Yeah, the angel of death. I don't really, I don't really know her, you know. And then Olivia chimes in. She's like, "Yeah, well, it's just not good if you're friends with her, you know. Just everywhere she went, people died. Other people. It was never her. And you're like, ooh, kind of she like. She makes a good point, though. Yeah, she has a good point, but you know, damn, it's rough. And it's she's bad, like, though. no, it's I. Bad, yeah, she's like, no, I haven't seen her yet. She's like, well, first, last stop on her book tour, uh, first stop on her road to recovery. It's very, very, very dramatic. That's what Kirby said. You know, so obviously she's already got an opinion about Sid and, you know, the situation. And by the context, we learn that this girl, Jill, is in fact a relative, a cousin of Sydney Prescott, so you're like, well, okay, so you, I think the audience starts forming an opinion of what's going to happen to her, like, right now, like, right at this point. You're like, you oh, know, yeah, some shit's going to happen, because it just does. And You get the idea just, that she's maybe going to take the mantle of Sid, you know, yeah. in this movie, and this, and this is where you get the idea that maybe Sid is fair game, just like in Scream 3, they said all bets are off. Maybe it's true in this one. Maybe, yeah. Um, but then we, we go to swear, we cut to the school, and we we see uh, this high schooler with some sort of a head cam. It's like he films his entire high school experience as like a video blog. And I forget his name, but his buddy is a dork. Yeah, his buddy's there. His name is Charlie, and he's played by uh, Rory Culkin, who is, I believe, the younger brother of Macaulay Culkin. Is this guy um, Robbie? Is this Robbie? Robbie, yes. Hall pass with Robbie Mercer. That's what this yeah. is called. That's what his little thing is called. And he's he's filming things, and then Charlie's there, and he shows up, and you can tell these two are kind of they're, they're sort of like Randy. Both of them are sort of like the best of Randy Meeks. Like one of them is the movie geek. Well, they're both a little bit the movie geek, and then the other one, Robbie, is more of like the the, the prankster you know, the comic release, and that's yeah. something Jamie Kennedy did, you know, for the character of Randy Meeks. She got both of those in one character, but you get split the two characters here. So there's an interaction in Jill and and with uh, Jill and Olivia, my, you know, don't look at my tits, look at my eyes, Mars, uh, Morris, whatever it is he says, and then <laughs> there's this really weird interaction between Carly and Kirby, and, and then, uh, Robbie walks off and kind of makes a face at him, and he's like, oh, yeah, as if, right, asshole. So, obviously, you see there's, like, this thing where Charlie he wants the said, girl. Yeah. He should have said, oh, really, Alicia? Mm, that, that would have been great. Yeah, he should have. Yeah. He should have done that. But, yeah, so then we cut to the inside of the school, and I want to make an interesting note here. Henry Winkler does make an appearance in that terrible, oh, terrible yeah. statue. Yeah, they, they didn't even, like, 
they only briefly show it. They were going to show it more and do more with it, but it looked like shit, so they just kind of left it alone. But, you know, we don't get Randy in this movie, and we don't get Cotton Weary, and it's the first time that neither one of them are in the movie, and we don't get Red Right Hand, the song, so at least we get Henry Lee Quirk. Yes, yes. At least we get Henry Winkler. where everything else has changed. You know, things have been updated, and you can already tell that this is going to be a different kind of movie, um, more akin to the modern day stuff. And I believe, if timeline and my memory serves me correct, it's been fifteen. It's a fifteen year anniversary of the original Woodboro, Woodsboro murders, which, if we get the date correct, they would have occurred in 1996, which is when the first scream was released. So they actually get they take very very good care of continuity in this. Um, they do. Yeah, which I just I love. It's, it's I love that. So then we get you know this weird exchange with Kirby and uh, Jill, and then the locker door slams, and there's Trevor. We're introduced to Trevor because Kirby's like, "Hi, Trevor. Bye, Trevor." You know, it's just this weird kind of. You could tell that they don't really like him. You know, either one of them, and. Jill yeah, and throughout this movie, you can feel you can feel the red herring being set up there with Trevor. I mean, there's some others that you catch glimpses of um, that we'll get into, but yeah, him, he's the one that they're pounding home the hardest right from the beginning. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and so Jill goes to walk away, and she's like, "Some," he's like, "Somebody loves you over here. Somebody cares about you. Somebody who's sorry that he lets you go." And she turns around, and it's like teenage soap opera city. She's like. You know, you take them to the airport, you let them go, or you get off the phone with them, you let them go. But when somebody, you know, gives you everything and you just go Does out. Does that mean anal? That, what was she saying? Does that, she get damn anal? It. Damn it, man. I, I, was, I was expecting that, but not at that particular <laughs> point. I, I was about to comment and say when she said everything and the way she meets eyes with Trevor, I knew right off the bat. She gave it yeah. up. I just knew. I just knew it. You know, just no way around. She gave up that ass. That's come on, man. Damn. <laughs> gave <laughs> up that ass. That's that's what she did. Awful. And, and when you say it in like your slightly or you know heavily or mildly or moderately inebriated state, it reminds me of the Tourette's guy when he's like, my ass. <laughs> if you're not familiar with your threats, uh, look him up on YouTube. It's the best hour you'll spend of your life, I promise. <coughs> we'll shit. Yes, but uh, anyway, so we get that exchange, and then obviously things ain't going well. You know, they're not they're not going well. And then we we, we go to a we come to a classroom, and it looks like Olivia and a bunch of the other girls and a bunch of other kids and Robbie and. I guess Charlie are in this class, and the teacher is discussing something about an assignment. I believe it's English class, and then all of a sudden, everything starts like all these beeps start happening, and all this. And the teacher, I love his his, his response to this: anything with an on-off switch needs to be in the off position. And I'm like, I, I don't know why. I guess I just went perverted there. I was like, <laughs> when I first heard that, you're worse you than know. me. See? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, at least mine is definitely related to sex, but yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, my, <laughs> my too. But uh, yeah, so uh, he finally relents. Says, "Anybody want to share?" And then 
I think it's... Yeah, because everybody's phone's just fucking blowing up. It's crazy. Yeah, there's like 30 phones beeping and buzzing and vibrating and ringing and just, it's crazy. Yeah, you wouldn't have seen that in our school days. You know what I mean? Like, it wouldn't have been that way. Like, if you had a phone back then, it was hidden. Yep, it was on silent. They even said, in my day, turn it off vibrate and put it on silent so it doesn't make any noise. Take it from you. Oh, yeah. Take it, take that from you. And then that was like your status symbol then. You didn't want to get caught with that. You know, taking taking that away because then you lose the status uh, as being one of the cool kids with a cool cell phone or whatever the hell, whatever. Yeah. But uh, he's like, anybody want to share? And then I believe it's Olivia that says, uh, Jenny Randall, Marty Cooper were both murdered last night. And then the teacher goes, what? And then the room starts buzzing with gossip and conversation. And then Robbie says, you know, let me ask you, what's your favorite? So, what's your favorite scary movie? And everybody tells him to shut up. And he has been so like, as opposed to as opposed yeah. to Casey and Steve, where you're walking in on everybody find you know everybody's already found out because the cops are all there. This one, they're finding out in the middle of class, so it's an interesting dynamic, you know, as opposed to the first one. Absolutely, and it's totally different. Yeah, and then um, you get the and and uh, Robbie has said this to uh, he. There's an, I forgot to mention a short interaction between Trevor and Robbie. After this, the uh, interaction between Trevor and Jill, and he's like, "Let me ask you something. So what's your favorite scary movie?" And then he goes, "Ah!" And then Robbie like runs away because he's all like scared and shit, and he's like catches him off guard. So he's been pestering the hell out of people all morning since school started with this question: "What's your favorite scary movie?" Which, like you said, is like a throwback, you know, an homage to the original film and the line. Well, they're getting know. it from Stab, you know? But, I mean, that's what they love in this movie because, you know, there's like seven entries into this damn series now. Yeah, yeah. And it just, it's it's ridiculous. Like, and uh, so then they start questioning um, people, those kids, you know, but, but first, before we jump into that, they go back to the video store or before that even, you get uh, Gail sitting at the computer with the news on or uh, on the TV, and she's trying to write something, obviously, what appears to be a book because it says Chapter 1, and then she's like watching this report, and it's Sid on, on some like, talk show, and she's talking about, you know, if I played a victim too long, it was my own fault. It was time for me to reinvent myself, and this, that, and the other, and it's a promotional little, you know, docket for her book, and and, uh, yeah, you get the impression that Gail was fucking jealous. Well, yeah. She's like, well, Gail, time to reinvent yourself. So she uh, sits down and this is the screen's blinking with a little cursor for her to type. And she's like, except I have no fucking idea what to write. And she does it like these yeah. big letters. And it's hilarious. It's, I think she bolded it, too. She was all uh, hyped up yeah. about it. Yeah. Yeah, she did for sure. Um but, yeah, so you get that interaction there, and that's kind of cool to see. And then you see uh, Sid's uh, book signing. And being someone that's actually experienced doing one of these firsthand, it is very close to this because you've got people crowded around, and you're trying to talk, and, you know, your handler is there trying to watch the clock and make sure some crazy person doesn't jump you and all this. And it just is very – that's very very close to how it really is. Um so then all of a sudden um you get a you get a thing from Dewey, it cuts to him and this other person who turns out to be his deputy, Judy, Deputy Hicks. 
uh, blonde, you know, big bust, and definitely I think she's supposed to be sort of like the 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 dumb blonde eye candy kind of thing in this movie, um, as far as the police goes. And you get this interaction between her and Dewey, which suggests that they're really close. And not in a way like he's cheating on her, but her, her dialogue was, I know Wes had to have been laughing when she offers lemon squares, a dessert that she's baked to him. And she's like, I can't, you know, uh, it's okay. And then she's like, you're not cheating on your wife if you eat my lemon square. <laughs> you know, it's like, also corny, though, you know what I mean? And it's supposed to be. And it is yeah. because of that, because it's Dewey. Yeah, and she's actually she paralleling like Dewey's original character in the first film. Yeah. Kind of aloof, yep. goofy, and she's like, "No, I wouldn't be cheating on my wife, but I wouldn't be cheating on my diet and all this and that." And then you get a, a page over the walkie from uh, another police, another policeman who we'll meet in a little bit. Uh, it says, uh, "Sheriff, this is uh, Perkins. You know, you got to get over to the uh, Randall house. It's bad, Sheriff." And then you see Dewey's eyes, and then he gets in the car, and Judy gets in her car, and they follow to go, and she follows him to go to the house. So we know by that point, the bodies have been discovered, you know. And that's right before, I guess, the school thing with the kids and the text messages and stuff. But yeah, so that's kind of where we are right now, as far as all that stuff goes. So then we jump back, to jump back a little bit, you know, or forward rather, to the book signing. And Dewey walks in and tells everybody to sit still and remain calm, and Judy's with him. And, you know, it's the scene of a potential crime scene, and then he got a number, the triangulation of the cell phone number, and he calls the number, and the phone rings where they can hear it. So it's nearby, so you get that kind of very creepy feeling, you know, like we did in the other films when the phone rings and stuff. So they run outside, and Sid tries to approach him after she's had her, you know, reintroduction with Gail and, and Dewey. She's like, not now, Sid. This is a crime scene. You know, this is a this is police business. She's like, it's my rental. And then he looks at her. And I think for a split circuit, you're supposed to go, oh, shit, they're framing Sidney. Or Sidney is really the fucking killer this time for people that believe that that's possible. So Sidney almost functions as a red herring. And so does the assistant. Because yeah, of this I think a lot of this is just, you, you start to realize the whole thing is just uh, the, the killer's way of making sure Sydney can't leave Kale though. Right, and that's exactly what happened. So they open up the trunk, and there's Sid's books and posters in there, and then this ghost face, I guess, mask and knife, and it's just there's blood all over everything in the trunk. So they're like, this is an official crime scene. And she's like, Dewey, please tell me this is a joke. He said, I'm afraid not, Sid. You can't leave town. You know, we don't know this, that, and the other. And it just, it's, that's a really cool scene. You know, that was a really good one. Um, so you've already, we've now established that there is a real problem happening. There is another killer on the list. You know, and, and Sid's just like, I don't know. Almost, she almost numbed herself to it. I think. Mm -hmm. Certain parts of this movie where she's like you said earlier, she's just like, oh well, you know, here it is again. Before it was like, oh no, not again. Now it's like, oh, again with this. Okay, you know, it's just sort of like laid back, and 
and almost numb, you know, she's almost numb to it at certain points. So we get all that, and then... Yeah, she's kind of not even in the main... She's not even the main fucking character in this movie. It's hard to explain. No, she's not. She's not. No, no. I mean, her... She plays an integral part, but so far the film has been focused on everybody else in varying degrees but her <laughs> up to this point. And it was sort of the yeah, same with the screen, too. You know? It's kind of a Dewey and Gale movie again. We get a lot of that in the sequels. Uh, it's not just Dewey and Gale in this one. It's more about the new generation. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you get the... And then you, the next... Thing, the next little bunch of exchanges you get are you, you get the the feeling, and obviously there's on screen, you know, like visual proof to confirm this. There's this weird like animosity between Gale and Dewey because they're strained, I guess. At the time, she's not a reporter anymore. She's trying to make a comeback and write something good again, and she's jealous of Sid and her success. And then there's this weird kind of conflict between Gale and Judy. You know, you see yeah. that because um, she's like, there's an exchange at the police station where the girls are all being questioned. The ones that rode in the car in the beginning, Jill and, and Olivia and and then Kirby. Um, and then, you know, Sid is there because they all got calls from the same cell phone number that the girls did or from the same whatever, and, and she's in there, and then Gail tries to come in, and I love the response. Like, uh, one of the deputies says, uh, she's, she walks in, and he's like, uh, Mrs. Riley, and she's like, uh, Ross, or whatever, and then the other officer says, First Lady, and she's like, Perkins, you know, like, there's like she's got a favorite, and Perkins appears to be the favorite. And we meet these two in person. It's Anthony Anderson, and then I fail to remember the other actor's name, but it's funny because Perkins is an homage to Anthony Perkins. Yep. Adam Brody is the other guy. Yeah, Adam Brody. That's what I was thinking of. And and his name is the portmanteau of something as well. I just can't recall what it is. But, yeah, there's obvious references to Psycho. And remember the big reveal for Billy in the first film is we all go a little mad sometimes. Anthony Perkins, Psycho. You know, yeah. you get that, that. I think that was put in there on purpose to to reference and homage that particular pivotal moment from the first film as well. So that And let's not forget cool. Anthony Anderson was in the Scary Movie uh, sequels. So, you know, he played what? a big role in the yeah, he, he, I remember he was in Scary Movie 3, for sure. So he played a big role in the spoofs of this movie. Uh, I didn't see 3. I didn't see Scary Movie 3. I only saw the first two. I think I stopped at 3, but yeah. Okay, well, all right. Well, that makes sense, then. But he's known for his comedic roles and stuff, and he's a comedian. So to see him in sort of a semi-serious role was interesting. And and you get the thing that he and, he and uh, Hoss are uh, friends. They're co-workers, but they're also friends, and you get that in the, here at this point and then later on in the film, too. But then you get this interaction between Judy and, and Gail, and I love it. She's like, I want to go in. She's like, you you're, can't get involved in this, you know, Gail. I know you're this and that and whatever, and then Dewey sees it, and he tries to come out and stop it, but by that point, it's out of fucking control, and, and this animosity thing 
I think Gail thinks that Judy's trying to come on to her husband, and that uh, Dewey's not the least bit interested in Judy like that. N- not as far as I can tell, anyway. Yeah, I think I think maybe a little bit, but he's just a uh, he's a good dude, so it's not even an issue. You know what I mean? Yeah, true. Yeah. So, and then I love her, her finish uh, or her big like thing in the office with Sid. Um, which I think actually doesn't have the girls in this at this point, but it's just Sid. And uh, she walks in and she's like, you know, I helped you with this, remember? I helped solve these things three times before, you and me together. So you get that she's wanting to, you know, be part of the team. And Dewey says no. And you're like, why? And then you realize why. Because, you know, He's married to her. They've been married since they got, you know, there was a proposal at the end of Screen 3, and they've been married all this time. And, and Dewey's almost lost her several times before, and now that he's got her back and for good and she's staying with him and she has stayed with him, he doesn't want her to get hurt, so he refuses to let her be involved. But I think it just, I think it totally misses him. It doesn't occur to him to think that maybe she's a victim anyway because of her connection to Sydney. Maybe she's a potential victim anyway, just like he might end up being a potential victim because of the connection to Sid. It just escapes him. He's just focused on trying to protect her and make sure she doesn't get hurt. So he says no, and it yeah. pisses Gail off, and Gail goes rogue. She's like, hell with them. Fuck you. I'll just go do whatever, and let me know when you're back on Team Gail again. And she goes out the door, and she's like, you know, what is it she says? I know that you don't. I know that you mean well, Judy, and I know you bake your, I don't mind you baking your, these little treats from a husband as you do, but she says some rhetorical, you know, hysterical kind of comment, and then it was meant to be a, it was meant to be a jab at, at Judy, and when she comes out of the office, she's like, by the way, your lemon squares taste like ass. Tastes like ass. <laughs> yeah. So, and then and then Dewey quickly runs out and he says, no, they don't, they don't. He's he's trying to keep everything smooth. He really is a good guy. You know, he's really doing his best here. Gail's just so strong-willed, you know. Yeah, no doubt about it. Yeah, for sure. So then it's just there's more dialogue, and then you get to see Sydney and and, and Jill together, and and that's really fucking awkward. Like, I guess because Jill just doesn't know Sydney. Sydney's so much older, and all that happened. And being in in the family... And having the history, it's like, oh, that's Jill. She's the cousin of uh, what's her face which with all the murders. Sort of like how in the first movie with uh, Sydney, it's like she was daughter of, you know, you don't say it. You know, it's like we do. We know she's, you know, the relation to this and that. And there's just it's sort of like stigmatized. I guess Jill is the impression I get is that mm-hmm. what's happened to Sydney has like had an adverse effect on her life and made it hard for her to kind of just be normal because she's always going to be the cousin of Sydney Prescott, you know, and, and Olivia really said it best at the beginning. She's like, wherever she went, people died. Other people, it was never her, you know, right. and it just, it it's just, like people expected her to be the one to die. It's pretty stupid, really, you know, the way they act about it. Yeah. Yeah, it really is. So you get through all this and then there's, a scene after school where Kirby and Jill are hanging out in the, I guess it's, it's Kirby's bedroom, and uh, they can see Olivia's bedroom and house across the way, which I think actually was sort of a reference to Nightmare on Elm Street, the first one, because 
Nancy and Glenn could look out their windows and see each other. I think that was kind of maybe. Yeah, and West Craven worked hard to make this happen. You know, to make yeah. sure that they had houses like that. Yeah. Yeah, and and I mean, I think that's kind of, I, I would like to think he did it on purpose, but if he didn't, it was a very, very amazing and, and ironic happy accident that it ended up being that mm-hmm. way. That the two characters in this film, or the characters in this film are bedrooms that are, you know, across the street from each other or whatever, or right next door to each other, in whatever proximity they're close, just like they were the first night on Elm Street film. But you get this exchange where there's a phone call to Kirby, and it's the ghost face voice, and and she looks at the phone, and I guess it says Trevor's phone, or it's Trevor who's trying to do ghost face, and and all this, and and she's they're watching the movie Shaun of the Dead is what they're watching, and and then so and there's like more of this interaction with Ghostface doing his treacherous kind of threatening creepy things on the phone, and then he's like, "So how's the movie?" And then Kirby's like, "What movie?" And he's like, "Shaun of the Dead," and then you're like, "Oh shit, this motherfucker's close," because mm-hmm. he, could see, he could see what's happening, almost like how you said he's close because you hear the dogs barking on the phone and in Casey's area in the first film, you get that notion that he's close. So they kind of replicate that. And I think they do a really good job with this, with what happens next, because um, he's like, I'm in your closet. And then she walks slowly to the closet door, which is kind of almost like, I get that Halloween vibe, the bedroom, the one bedroom upstairs, when somebody would walk towards that bedroom door, you get that weird wide angle shot of like this closet door, or this bedroom door, or whatever door. So she goes up to it and opens it. She's like, I'm over this. Liar, I'm over this. And then he's like, I never said it was your closet. And then right at that moment, he busts oh, out of Olivia's closet. Yeah, he busts out of that closet. Yeah. And he fucking yeah. brutalizes her. I mean, he guts her like a fucking fist, man. Yeah. Dude, he, like, uh, my God, he. I don't think he's killed anybody this bad, other than maybe in the first one with Casey, maybe. But this one, he's just violent. He's like Michael Myers, uh, Curse of Michael Myers. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, very, sort of very, shit. Yeah, and, and, and they see it, and they watch it with horror, and they can just see all of everything. And he's flailing his little coat, his little the little uh, thing he's wearing, the shroud, you know, the ghost face costume. It's got those weird fluttery things, and they're, like, flying around. So all you see is that, a knife, and blood. That's all you see. And, like, her hitting the bed and him stabbing her, and then... They start screaming, and then obviously Sydney's downstairs or nearby, so she runs in and sees it. And then she goes across the street to try to get in the house because she wants to be the fucking hero, I guess, or, you know, she's just used to it. So she tries to bust in that door, and right as she tries to bust the door in, Ghostface throws uh, Olivia's head and body, well, through the bedroom window, not all the way out, but through it just enough to break it right as she breaks the glass on the the front door at the bottom, and then he pulls her back in and throws her, I guess, on the bed, and it's just, the room is just littered. Oh, oh Christ, it's awful. It's probably as close it's to what with the murder scene, like any real murder photograph you've ever seen with, like, a stabbing. Uh, probably as close to any of those as you'll get. It's rough. Yeah. It's bad. It's so, painted the walls with her blood. Yeah, literally. Head. Yeah. With nuts on her. Yeah, so Sid runs in and goes 
you know, upstairs and to the door and about passes out. The sight of the dead the dead girl almost makes her sick, and she like falls against the door. Oddly enough, she like touches some of the blood, which I don't think anybody really notices, but she touches some of the blood that's on the door frame as she goes down. And then she hears somebody coming, and she gets up, and it's it's uh, Jill, and Jill wants to see, and Jill won't let her in. And right about that point, the ghost face jumps out of some fucking corridor and punches Sydney in the face and then stabs the fuck out of Jill in the arm, cuts her and shit, and then run, tries to run down the steps, and Sid kicks the killer, and the killer, like, falls down the fucking stairs and shit. So you're like, yeah, shit. Yeah, it's nice to see that, you know, uh, 15 years later, Ghostface is still a clumsy fuck. It is. It's very nice to see that. And then he scrambles out of the fucking house. And she tries to go, and, and then uh, she's down at the bottom, and all of a sudden Perkins runs in and Hoss run in. You know, they run in, and and uh, Sydney says he went that way out the back door. So they go to look, and then there's nothing there. He's gone. Door's open. So, and, you know, Perkins comes back with a gun drawn and says, are you okay? And he's, she's like, yeah, but you need to look upstairs. So he pulls the gun out, you know, closer, like, to him. I love the way that shot, and then he looks at her, and he's like, oh, okay, and then, like, kind of goes upstairs kind of easy, and then Jill comes down the steps, and then Sydney wants to rush to her, and she's like, don't touch me, you know, so automatically you get that, you know, that reminder of that Sid being in this family and related to her has sort of stigmatized her. Yeah, when Sid goes outside, you already... Tell me if I'm wrong. When she's outside and, you know, they're getting looked at by, you know, the paramedics and stuff, aren't you hearing people that are saying shit about her mom and stuff in the background? Yeah, and her. She's like, why did she come back? I thought this was over. You hear all these different comments. You you know, your mother was a whore and all this other kind of weird shit. Yeah. Fucked up, man. Nobody's forgotten. Nobody has forgotten Maureen Prescott or Sidney Prescott. So it just automatically we've got all this into the you know we're just a few minutes in the movie and we've got some awesome kills, lots of gore, more probably more gore per you know footage uh, you know aspect uh, you know in such a short period of time as we do in the first film because I venture to say that Olivia's death was more gory than Casey's. The only thing Casey's had that Olivia's didn't was that because I guess it was colder outside because. Uh, Drew Barrymore's character, Casey, had a sweater on. You see the entrails, like, steaming on the ground. Uh-huh. So that that's, like, where that scene kind of one-ups one it. But as far as blood content, Olivia's death has it beat by far. Oh, uh, they, just, they just threw it all over the place. It was awesome. I don't think there's any blood left in her body, like, the way that, from where I, the way that I look at it, you know. Agreed, yeah. Yeah, it's just it's fucking, fucking brutal. Her. It was oh, great, yeah. though. It was, it, I mean, things, they don't fuck around in this movie right off the bat. So, <laughs> yeah, but I'm glad you caught that, too, as to what was going on outside because, like, every time I watch it, I can't ever catch exactly what people are saying, but it sounds like they're saying shit about her mom and stuff, so. Yeah, they are. <laughs> but, yeah, it's just, it's already you've got more than you've expected, or more than you expected, you know, because... Uh, I think people, you know, you see the third one, then you see this one, and this one is clearly the superior film. 
as far as I'm concerned, so far anyway, as far as yep. gore and blood and death content and character development and stuff like that, you're getting more and more character development and stuff. And then, so and it's in fucking Woodsboro. Let's not forget that's the most important thing here. It has not been in Woodsboro since the first one. Right, right. So you get to return to Woodsboro. No pun intended there. Um, it, it just feels more dangerous being in a place like that. You know, small town, less cops, that type of thing, you know? Yeah, true. And, and what better way to take a movie back than go back to where it started? I mean, the place. That's just, that was a brilliant idea. And I think, again, we owe, yeah, like we owe Kevin Williamson a, a huge debt of gratitude because he makes return. This is his first return to the screen films since uh, Scream 2. He wrote some stuff for Scream 3, and what he wrote was scrapped, and Aaron Kruger took over. So I venture to maybe dare, dare to venture to say that possibly the reason Scream 3 had such a bad reception as far as the movie itself was because a lot of Kevin's ideas were scrapped, and Aaron put his stamp on the series. Yeah. Not, not you know, it's funny. Is they actually bad, brought... but it was different, you know. They brought Aaron back to uh, polish up the script a little bit on this one, too. Apparently, um, Williamson and the, the Weinstein, the Weinsteins didn't get along too well in this movie or during the process. So, I mean, while this is Williamson's product, there's some uh, Aaron Kruger touches again on this one. Yeah. So I think that's just an interesting kind of sub-story, you know, post-script to the film, and that whole situation with them, with those two. And, so, yeah, so you, you definitely, you know, you get a, a return to the format of, you know, Scream, the original Scream, and so far, this one's living up to the hype, you know, as far as being better than the third one, anyway. So, we go through all that, and then the city runs outside, and they're telling her she should get looked at by the person in the ambulance, and then she goes up to to Jill, and Jill says she's sorry for what she said. And then Sydney walks with her arm around her and kind of walks with her to her house. And you kind of get this sense that maybe things are actually going to be okay between the two of them. Maybe they can get past this weird, like, tension. And some of it is because of the age. Because, uh, you know, Jill's obviously intended to be in high school, and Sydney has not been in high school for like 15 years. So, yeah. You know, older cousins that were estranged. And, um, yeah, so you get that, and then and by that point, you know, uh, it's just the whole town is on edge, and fucking Robbie <laughs> and Charlie are eating it up, the two film buffs, you know, which we'll get more into, into their characters and get introduced to them more in a little bit, but they're eating it up, and, and you know, Gail kind of senses that, you know, so Gail wants to try to figure out something to get, you know... You know, some material for a new book. She wants to do a, a new, a new book, and what better way than the, what's going on around her? You know, she figures she can capitalize on this, help solve it, and also make make some money off of it. So, yeah, it just it's it's wild. Uh, and then, so a short time later, uh, Sid has to go to the hospital. I guess. You know, right after that attack with Ghostface, and her assistant meets with her at the hospital, and there is an exchange between the two of them, and it really shows the content of that assistant's character. I know that you're 
aware of what I'm about to talk about here. But uh-huh. so Sid comes out and she's like, you know, oh this that you know I'm you know I just got checked up on and all that. And then the first thing she hears out of her sister's mouth is Random House or whatever wants to sign you to a three book deal. You can name your price. This is awesome. This is so good. And then. Sydney says, do you know, Rebecca, does it ever strike you at some point that maybe there's more to this than money? Maybe there's things, other things in life? She's like, look, you wrote a self-help book. You know, you wrote this because you wanted to write it and you wanted to help some other people. But, you know, if this is a win-win. Look, you know, just you have to you, – already you understand that you're the one thing that's keeping these all these downtrodden fucks from jumping off of a bridge you know, and ending their life or killing themselves. And you're the one thing keeping them to hang on to life. And, you know, you could write more books and, and continue to do that and save people and, and share your message and, and, and get paid to do it. She said it was a win-win. And by that point, Sid has realized what Rebecca really is. And she's like, I won't be needing your services anymore. And she's like, what? And she said, like, you're fired. And then she walks off. Fired. Yeah. Fired. Yeah, yeah, that 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 exchange is great. And then Rebecca's like, hmm. you know, like she she's like and then she's on her way to the farm garage, she's like, Still call me back. She'll call me back. It's fine. She'll call me back. You know, and, and you get a little bit of this prior when the police show up at the book station. She she talks to Henry, whoever that is, maybe her boss on the phone. And she's like, yeah. Wow, this is awesome. This is this is great, you know. This is going to be so good, and the, the publicity and this, that, and the other. It's just it's a it's a gold mine, and she's very similar to to Gail's character in the first film. Oh, she is very much her, so. Yeah, she didn't give her out anybody. And she's like, and, and so she tries to make conversation at some point before this with Gail, and Gail threatens that to like, beat her ass. Yeah, yeah. she's like testy. <laughs> She's like, dug a hole here, trying to dig my way out. So how the effort's going? Are you thinking about trying to revitalize your tarnished brand? She said, I'm about to revitalize your face with my tarnished brand. And then Rebecca backs up. She's like, oh, God. And then then, then fucking Gail walks off. She's like, I still got it. I'm like, yes, so much. (laughs) I love that. I love that that exchange between the two of them. So cut back to uh, Rebecca you know, trying to get into the parking garage, you know, and leave. And then she gets a phone call and it's kind of safe. And she's like, he's like, Sidney Prescott, please. And she's like, well, I'm, I'm taking, you know, Miss Prescott's phone calls and screening them and, and, and such. And she's in the hospital, but I'll, if you want to leave a message, um, you know, I'll be happy to give it to her. And he's like, you are the message. You know, and it's just, it's, it's super cool, that whole thing. And then she tries to, fucking get her car, you know, get in her car, and she hits the car alarm thing, and it starts beeping, and it's like, God, Rebecca, uh, doesn't sound to me like you're in the hospital. Sounds like you're in the <laughs> hospital. So yeah. He's so she's fucking like, But I'd be happy to put you there in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> he's so fucking... Because, like, at times, he, he goes over the top with some of the shit he says, but it's so good, because he's going for the reaction, you know? So it makes sense. Absolutely. And um, that's just that's a great interaction between the two of them. So she tries to get in the car, and the car won't start. She notices the hood is pot. Well, right as she notices that, all of a sudden, this black pair of boots jump down on the hood, and then it's Ghostface looking in from the windshield 
to her. So she's like screaming for help, and all of a sudden there's another car speeding out of the garage, and and then she turns back, and he's not on the hood anymore. So prior this to this, she's checking the back seat and shit. You know, yeah, it's it's wild, and uh, yeah. So she gets out of the car and then tries to make a run for the elevator, and right as she gets to the elevator, she turns around. I guess she hears something, and he's running. Ghostface is fucking running. He is like running after her. I, I would compare it to a spear. Goldberg spear when he used to spear opponents. Like he is yeah. charging her ass. He you is. know. Yes, yeah, so he Yeah, so he runs up to her, charges her, and the knife goes right in. You actually see it in this. Go right into her. And an interesting thing about this knife, I don't know if you're aware but you probably are but yeah. you and Vicker both yeah, but you you and Vicker both film buffs like I am. Yes. This is the first time they didn't use a collapsible knife. They used uh, effects, uh, CGI digital effects on the blade. So I'm okay yeah. with it. Yeah, yeah it doesn't I mean, look fake. If, if you told fake. me, yeah, if you told me that it was going to be CGI, I probably would shit on it. But having seen it, it didn't bother me at all. And also, when he stabs her, I love the little intimate moment between the two of them, just as she's about to die. You know what I'm saying? It's not like a lot of people where she screams, she's dead. She does this kind of look at him like I, I don't know. There's there's something sexual about it. She's hot too, so, so I just want to which that. which makes me think that we'll get to that later on. But it makes me think uh, something about another character about maybe we'll get to it. I don't want to. If I this one's before. a man. Yes, I, I don't want to. Yeah. If you're listening to the show and you haven't seen this movie, you need to stop listening right now. Go watch the movie and then tune back into us because. Yeah, exactly. Spoiler, spoiler alert! Spoiler alert is about to happen, and it's going to piss somebody out there off. So I'm just warning you. Anyway, back to your regularly scheduled carnage here. Uh, so yeah, we get that, and then it cuts away to it cuts away to Dewey giving a press conference, and Gail is like trying to get in front of all the other reporters and try to like ask him questions that he has to answer, like force him to answer something like in public. Like, that he doesn't want to divulge, like, information. Almost like she did in the first film when, you know, she's asking if it's a serial killer. And and, and have you real, ruled out, you know, Neil Prescott? And he's like, we haven't ruled him out. You know, like, she gets him to face it, to admit things. You're the second one, too, when she's yeah. talking with his, the guy who is his dad in real life. But you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, the police chief, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so she's, she's trying, a troublemaker. Yeah, yeah, she hasn't lost that ability. Uh, <clears throat> so, yeah, you get that, and then, you know, he's like, we got everything under control. And and right as he says that, a, ah! a, a body falls from the top of the parking garage and on top of the news van, some news van, and it ends up being Rebecca. It's the body of Rebecca Walters, who is Sid's, was Sid's assistant. And hey, hey, a question for you. Yeah. You hear a scream when she's on her way down. Was that her not quite dead yet? And that was her screaming? Or I don't somebody think see so. her on the way down? I don't think so, because right before they show that, there's, a, there's a, a several there's several reporters and people in the in the audience that are listening, you know, that are gathered listening to Dewey, and they all look up right at the same yeah. time. And I think it's one of them screaming. Ostensibly a female, you know. It was just, it, I was just wondering, you know, because I've seen it several times, you know, many times, and I've always wondered, 
I was thinking. You know what's even better about that death, though? It's, I noticed it when I watched it this fourth or fifth time that I've seen it in. That when she hits the van, what 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 little bit of insides and blood that is left of her, like sp- like sprays out of the the body onto the news van because of the force of the fall. It's really cool looking. And then the fucking little thing falls over and it's on top of them, the little antenna. And I was just like, that was really well done. It was, and it was shocking too. Yeah, it was. So you've got all these deaths so far, and you've got, you know, Gail and, and you know, and there's still this animosity between her and Dewey, even though shit is, you know, really hitting the fan and it's hitting close to home. So you get all that, and then she finally decides to team up, more or less, with Robbie Mercer and with uh, Charlie, and it's more or less like a threat, almost, because he's got yeah, the little, little thing, thing on. She's like, turn the fucking camera off, you know, whatever. Yeah. yeah. And she's like, what would you say to the two, you know, two breeds of, you know, uh, like reporters and, and, you know, like journalism, two cutting-edge breeds of journalism coming together? What would you say to that? And Charlie's like, I love you. And she's like, good yeah. answer. It's really cool. Uh, and then she's, it's funny, she's like, well, maybe in return, I'll, you know, set up like a a celebrity guest, you know, meeting at your film club by, you know, appearing what about by me. She's like, what about Sydney? And then she's like, oh, she makes this face. It's just awesome. So yeah, a short she time is later. My, she yeah. is my Harry Potter or my Daniel Radcliffe to my J.K. Rowling. Yeah, but without the uh, box office and the book sales. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, it's good. It's, yeah, I love that interaction. And then, uh, you know, the next one of the next things is when they're having the, the film club thing and they're discussing the movies. And I just want to take a moment to, like, show, you know, to, to mention this. They, they pan the camera around the classroom, and there are a lot of Wes Craven films in there. There's, like, Serpent in the Rainbow. There's. You know, uh, the hills have eyes, and then there's like cabin fever, which was Eli Roth, and then the Green Mile, which is Stephen King, and then I think there's the Dawn of the Dead poster or something in there. And there's Tommy all kind to of, the thing, uh, lots of shit. Stab three. I, I didn't see that on Elm Street, but that doesn't mean that it wasn't there. But it's reference lighter too. So, yeah, yeah, but it's really cool. Um, and it's basically the film club. I love the way they introduce it. One step below football or whatever, and one step Glee above club. Glee Club, yeah. Or one, one step below Glee Club and one step above the We Sit Club. Yeah. And that's really funny. So they get to discussing the movie tropes and stuff, and, and, and they bring up the interesting idea that the killer is is – I love the things that they use. They use uh, Shrekel and Screamake. Copyrighted. Yeah, copyrighted, and I love that. And, and this film is very reminiscent of Randy. His it is, and it reminds me of Scream 2. Yeah, 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 it does. Yeah. So they're discussing all the stuff, and it's like the original, you know, was at a party, and, and I think uh, Sid comes up with that because she's there and Gail are there. And then 
she's like, well, is there supposed to be, you know, where's the big party? And then they're like, well, there's Sabaton. And then she's like, what's that? So they go into this explanation that it's a, like a tradition they have every year of watching all the sad movies one after the other. And, and it's secret invite only, personal, you know, IMs or emails and all this. And they make it sound very exclusive. And, and it probably really would have been, you know, there are stuff like that. Bands do secret shows. Facebook invite secret group only. That's like sort of a, a real thing. So I like that they kind of, you know, reference that in this movie. And then <laughs> Gail's like, you're not going to tell us, but we're working together. You know, we're not going to tell us. And then, and then they're like, well, so how about that Q&A now, Sydney? And then Sydney and Gail both leave. They're like, Gail's like, let's get the hell out of here. Like, fuck this. Fuck this. And, and, and then Charlie's like, that was awesome. <laughs> it's, just, it's just so weird. He's a weird character. He and Robbie. He is. Yeah. Yeah, Robbie, Robbie's, like, Charlie's kind of funny. Robbie's really funny. But they're weird. I mean, they're dorks. I mean, that's, they're, I don't know what else to call them, you know. They are what they are. Yeah. But, yeah, that's a really cool part, you know, the discussion uh, uh, about the movies and where this party's supposed to be. And so Gail ends up finding out somehow. I don't know how the hell she finds out, but she does. So she heads out and, you know, calls Dewey to let her know that she's got some equipment and all that and go to this fucking farmhouse, like a fucking abandoned farmhouse or something. Or it's a farmhouse with somebody, one of the one of the kids at the high school family, and they've got like a projector set up and they start off with the first stab movie. I love the credits, a Robert Rodriguez film. That's just... Really cool yes. that they do that. <laughs> and there's lots of other things that are going to of the first film. A lot of the male characters are wearing Letterman's jackets, which is something Stephen Orth was wearing when he was killed in the first film. Casey's boyfriend. Very true. Very true. Yeah. Good catch. Yeah, so there's lots of that. And then there's, again, more people wearing the ghost face masks and, and stuff. And Gail actually has one and puts it on so she can kind of blend in. And I love her dance. Her dance is so awful. <laughs> and it's meant to be. Yeah, and at the whole time she's planning these fucking cameras, you know, to try to catch something. Because they mentioned in the film class that the killer this time should be filming the murders in real time and uploading them so that in case they are caught, they get to be immortalized forever because once it's out there on the Internet, it's out there. You know, and that, that's very, very true. true, yeah. I mean, you know? yeah, like Steve Stevens, that piece of shit, they killed the old guy, and yeah, fuck him. Yeah, and then that weird guy from Memphis who set himself on fire in public after his girlfriend broke up with him. That was a little weird, too. I was like, so we're, kill- we're killing and we're killing others and killing ourselves on social media, uploading it. So now millions of people on these social media sites are going to see it, but that's a different conversation for a different kind of show. But, yeah, so <clears throat> that's sort of what we get here is that, you know, she kind of follows that lead, and she's like, well, I'm going to see if I can set up some stuff and catch some things. So she goes to set him up, 
I love how she's like trying to right as she's walking by. It says based on the Gail Weathers book on the screen, and she's standing up, and somebody sits down in front, and she, and then she's like, "Screw you," or whatever, and she puts her middle finger up, and she's still got the fucking uh, ghost face mask on. It's hilarious. <laughs> it's goofy looking. Yeah, so she finally takes all that off and goes back out to the car and sets up the laptop and stuff and, and is, you know, has a conversation with Dewey right quick and he's like, you don't need to be there, this, that, and the other, stop. And they're, they're not getting along. So she's watching the computer footage and right as she watches it, things start being placed in front of the camera to obscure the view so that the camera's completely blacked out. Beers or cups you know, whatever, and in one case, there's, like, a black, shroudy-looking thing, which I assume is, like, the killer, like, his robe or, you know, this ghost face robe that that they wear, part of the, you know, part of the outfit, and she's like, what the fuck? So she goes back in there, and she's carrying a webcam of her own, and she goes to the one that's set up just above where the projector is, where the film is being shown across the, you know, the barn area there. And and at that point, um, Dewey shows up and is looking in her car and sees the footage, and he can see her webcam and what's hurt from the vantage point behind her, which she's completely fucking unaware of what's going on behind her because the webcam is facing behind her and she's facing the other way. So... He sees the the what the ghost face, the killer, the, the the outfit and the knife and all that, and she can't see it. So he yells, "Gail, he's right behind you!" And somehow, I guess because it's not that far away, she jerks around, turns around, and avoids getting fucking just sliced in half. Like really, she avoids death right there because ghost face is it's not for like a fucking time. Let me tell you. And there's the scuffle between them, and fucking Dewey runs in and starts shooting up there above the killer. And by that point, the barn house is full of kids, and they're ape shit. They're trying to all scramble out because there's a gun, and the fucking sheriff's shooting somebody, and there's something going on. They don't know what it is, and they're just confused and freaked the fuck out. So they they start running out and clearing the fucking place out, and he's shooting up there at the killer. And then... The unthinkable happens. The killer stabs Gale. Yeah, it doesn't appear to be a a life-threatening, you know, it doesn't kill her anyway, not at first. But he stabs her in, like, the shoulder blade, and she falls off the the ledge, you know, onto the, the barn floor, which is, like, padded with straw and stuff or whatever. And she, you know, the killer gets away, and then, you know, he runs back down, uh, Dewey runs back down to her, and she's laying there bleeding and stuff, and and he's telling her how sorry that he is, and she'll be okay, just put pressure on it and all that. So, at this point, you're like, shit, Gail might not live, because it's bad. She's blood going everywhere, and her eyes are fluttering, and it just it doesn't look good. Mm-hmm. So, you're like, shit. As a viewer, you're like, damn it, well, all, if, you know, all the main characters, you know, you know, if, they, if that's the, if the rules of a trilogy or, an, or a, a franchise are, you know, available here, then there's no telling what could really happen. All main characters could all end up dead. You don't know. But it looks like she might end up dead. So it just, that, that scene, I want to get your input on it. What do you think about that one? 
like that whole exchange between Ghostface and, and uh, Gale and then Gale and Dewey. Well, the whole thing with uh, Ghostface covering up the cameras and everything was fucking creepy the first time I saw it, just the way yeah. it went down. Yeah. I really thought Gale was about to die right there. Um, and then, you know, it, I, I guess this is where Dewey comes to his senses and realizes he needs to, like, do more to protect his own life. Yeah. yeah, that's what I'm thinking. But it was really good. It was really well done. And then you still, you know, they're not out of the woods yet because she could still die. I mean, it doesn't look good. And at that point, there's a news report. Later, there's like a news report that shows that she was a victim of a stabbing. Mm-hmm. She was stabbed. It doesn't yeah, say and she this died. Is, this know. is when Ghostface calls Sydney and tells her to turn on TV. And to me, this is my favorite Ghostface here when he tells her, and he's like, welcome home, Sydney. You know, and he's just having this monologue with her, and, I, I, and he's so laid back, and then he just kind of cackles at the end. So fucking good. Oh, yeah, and then she's like, what about, you know, you, you know, why don't you come after me? You got the balls for that? You know, and it just, she's, she taunts him right back. At this point, she's getting back to like she used to be. She's sick of the shit, you know. Yeah. And, and she, she notices some parallels, and she kind of comments on them when uh she goes in to see Jill during this, like, right before the, the barn exchange. She walks in on Jill and then Trevor coming into the window. Uh-huh. And, and she's like, it's okay, Sid. He's just, he's my ex and all this and that. And she's like, what? She's like, it just, you remind me of me. Something, you know? Yeah, exactly. Parallels there. And that's a cool little scene. That's one of my favorites, actually, is that. Because, you know, as somebody like you that Invictus focuses on, you know, continuity in films and, and, you know, meanings and, you know, subtext and all that, that scene speaks volumes about the stigma that's over Jill is the same stigma that was over Sydney. Like something about her family, just tragedies and murder and, and, and pain and suffering just befell them. And, and you know, she's. It just you feel for you feel for Jill, just like you feel you felt for Sid and still do. You know, you get that same kind of feeling. You want her to prevail because it seems like she's supposed to be like the next in line, the next Sydney Prescott, you know, the next survivor girl. That's what it seems like and and you're really kinda like it's kinda like the Danielle hair or the you know, the Jamie Lloyd to the uh to the uh, Lori Strode. Yeah, very much so. Good reference. I like it. Um, yeah, very much so. And, and you know, you get that, and that's that's kind of a very poignant scene. And and then right after that, you get the party. Obviously, has been fucking disbanded at this barn, but the party is continuing on somewhere else. Kirby's house. Kirby's house. I might and have a party at house. Since I have known you and Vic, I think of this scene a lot. Because there's an exchange here in Kirby's house between Charlie and Kirby, and he's he's like impressive collection. You got some great Suspiria, don't Suspiria? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. She's like, yeah, and I could trivia your ass under the table any day. He's like, oh yeah. Who played the first Leatherface? Like Gunnar Hansen. He's like, wow, did, did you did you feel that between us just now? That charge? And it just that reminds me of you guys because of the Gunnar Hansen thing and the horror movies, and then. That's yeah, sort of been like, all over. Yeah. yeah, that's sort of like one of the things I said to my wife when before we got married and we were just dating is, you know, this you know, I have a 
you know, knowledge about horror movies and stuff. And she's like, I love horror movies. And I'm like, no, you don't understand. This is like a thing. This is like a relationship that I have with them. And and if you're going to be with me, then you have to understand that the horror movies, you're going to be the side thing. You're the side relationship. The horror movies are the main one, you know? It wasn't yep. like, like that, but I just said, this is a, they're going to always be here. I mean, if you love me, you'll have to deal with it. And she has so far. That's a knock on wood. Um, but, yeah, so you get that kind of exchange there, and then all of a sudden you get fucking Trevor shows up, and he says he's been invited by Jill, you know, <laughs> a text message from her phone, and she's like, I didn't text you. I didn't text him. You get from my phone, and she's like, where is my phone? And she somehow lost her fucking phone, I guess, and all the shit that went on. Because when Sydney, which we missed a little bit, but to go back, backtrack a little, when she, she goes, secretly sneaks out of her room to go, I guess, to the Staton. Because there's, an, there's a, a scene that happens where um, Sydney's in the house, and then there's this noise at the door. It scares the shit over, and it's only, it's only Jill's mom, Kate, you know, and by this point, we've been introduced to her one other time, but she's still thinking about, you know, she was, you know, Maureen was my sister, too, you know, and I have feelings, and it affected me, and nobody seems to want to care about me. You almost get like she's trying to live off the, the, the like, sorrow and fucking, you know, sadness. She's fucking weird, too. Yeah, she's weird. weird. And you're thinking that, that line that she says about it being, you know, I'm, you know, I was hurt by it too, and you know, I'm. She was my sister. It kind of almost makes her look like a red herring to me. Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. But that was really the only moment that they went with, other than she said she was out shopping. But what did she say? I'll be right back. And so we know she says, she "I'll be right back." Her. Yeah, and then they they go to she goes to open the door, and Sid comes with her because I guess she remembers what Randy said. She remembers that you know, "I'll be right back" thing, and then they see Ghostface or something outside and they slam the door and, and shut the door and then go out, try to go out the front door and Ghostface is there trying to get through the door with the knife. They slam the door on him and then Sydney gives the worst directions ever. She's like, hey, can you brace the door with your body? Just brace the door with your body, you know, while I go get the phone. You know, just long enough for me to grab this and unlock the back door so we can go out. And she goes to do that and, and she's like, well, that's okay. Come on, you know. And right as she says that, you hear this noise, like this stabbing noise, and then the mom makes this weird face, and that's when you realize she's a stab. The killer has fucking ghost face and fucking stabbed her through the door slot, mail slot. And she died. He was fucking good, too. Yeah, and she says, tell Jill I'm sorry. That's like her last dying word. And it just, there's one other scene I want to point out. That we didn't talk about. We were talking about red herring, remember? And, and Scream is notorious for having several, you know, as a franchise. There's one other game where Sid is up there, and Deputy Hughes is like up there, status, talking to him. But you don't we had home rooms together, this, that, and the other, but you had a lot going on back there. All this, like, I would be her. This is really he looks like he's a hair and glue. Yeah. What is that horrendous racket? I don't know. It sounds like you, but maybe it's Vic. Hang on. Hey, Vic, get your phone real quick, buddy.
Okay, he's muted. There you go. Oh, I wasn't trying to shoot him away. I just couldn't figure out what it no, was. No, no, I, thought... it, I think he's driving, and that's what made this sound. By the way, quick reference here. You know the chick who plays uh, Sid's assistant? This chick was in Glow, and I didn't realize that. The TV show that's on Netflix? No idea. I didn't know. Uh, I didn't watch that, but she's been in a bunch of other things, too. If you look at her her uh, list on IMDb or Wikipedia or any site devoted to her, she's had some pretty well-known roles outside of Glow. That's one I noticed, but I did not watch that. So Yeah, I, I love that show. I can't speak to that, but I did want to speak to one other thing for anybody listening that has kids or kids or teenagers, you know, older teenagers, especially girls, they probably have heard Roger L. Jackson's voice because Cartoon Network ran a show called The Powerpuff Girls, and he uh-huh. was the voice of Mojo Jojo yeah. and, and, and also a Rowdy Ruff's boy, which I think is supposed to be the male kid versions of The Powerpuff Girls. He needs to do some fucking conventions and let Vic and me meet him because the dude's awesome. Oh, he does conventions. He does several. They can actually get on a – they had a big anniversary thing, like 20-year anniversary of uh, Scream, the first one, and he was there with Nev Campbell and Skeet Ulrich. And he does the voice, and then he does the Mojo Jojo voice too, and it's funny because at the point he does that, they bring up a little icon of Mojo Jojo there on the video. That's kind of funny. Yeah. It kind of hops around on the screen with him as he talks. But, yeah, he, is, he looks nothing like his voice sounds. Uh, he, you know, is an older gentleman, and, you know, he's got glasses and medium-length hair. He's just not – he's not what you think that voice should be. He, he doesn't match the voice, like at all. No. Like at all. Like the voice is just so amazing. And I think it's funny with all the technology – that they've got all the voice changers now, and none of them still sound anything close to his voice, even though they're supposed to. So it's, Good point. it's pretty, pretty wild, you know. Kind of a, and, and and that's sort of like a reference almost to Wes Craven, because again, you know, he was a, a you know a creative force, you know, an artist, you know, as far as the directing and writing and stuff. He was another one that can't be you know, duplicated, just like Roger L. Jackson's voice can't really be duplicated. I find the parallel between those two things quite, you know, cool and, and important, especially when you consider, you know, Craven, you know, helped bring all these movies to fruition. You know, like you said earlier, it was a, it was a combination of, of writing and directing. And, and Craven had a history as a writer and also a history as a director. And, and, you know, he was able to bring Kevin Williamson and later Aaron Kruger's visions to life and, and like manifest them on screen so i think that that speaks volumes about the about you know him as a as an artist and, and a creator and a filmmaker but anyway uh so we're back up here to uh you know we'll fast forward back to the the, the anti-party is what kirby calls the gathering in her house and she's like why are you still here trevor you know i don't know what advised you there's this moment right before that where it looks like after Jill runs off that there's Charlie might get lucky, <laughs> you know, because she's like, I've been drinking and I'm scared and lonely and you're kind of cute, especially when I'm drunk and scared and lonely and all that. And you're thinking, Oh, Charlie's going to score. And right about that time, uh, Robbie's outside talking about it. He's like, well, here's a how passes Robbie Mercer extra, you know, and it seems like there might be some history made, Woodsboro history made. My man Charlie, 
maybe getting lucky with a girl and all this. So you kind of see that cool little interaction. And then, oh, it's terrible. Um, you see uh, Robbie get fucking, like, the ghost face shows up and stabs the fuck out of him. Yeah. Like, it's awful. Like, his shit is fucking gruesome. Uh, and, 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 you know, it's, it's pretty bad. It's right up there with Olivia, especially the later part when he shows up again, like, all, you know, fucked up. But, so, right about the time that uh, Charlie and Kirby are about to kiss and do the deal, Trevor shows up again, and then fucking Charlie just gets this pissed-off face, and he storms out of the room, and he's like, did I interrupt something here? And then he's like, shut up, you know, which I did not expect him to say. Just does not sound like something he, you know, a character like he, like he is would say. But and then she makes this fucking face at him and shit. And she's like, "Why are you still here, Trevor? Who invited you?" And he's like, "Obviously not you. Where's Jill?" And he's like, "I love how you're here to protect her, but you don't know where she is. She's upstairs." So then you get all that, and then yeah, she just fucking disappears for no reason. Yeah, and and then Sid comes by looking for her later, you know. And it just, it's one big fucking mess at her house. And then they stumble upon Robbie, and Robbie's all fucked up, and he dies, right? Like, because Ghostface, like, finishes him off right after they see him. Or he dies right as Ghostface shows up, because he's, like, just fucking, like, gutted. Like, his throat's cut, he's fucking stabbed in the chest, and there's blood pouring out of his mouth. And his last words were, run. And then he like collapses and dies. So his his, mm-hmm. his death is pretty fucking gruesome, um, in its own right. You know, a pretty fucking gruesome little thing. So it, it was really good. I liked the way it was done. It was filmed well too. So then you've got you know go go upstairs and hide. You know, or go hide Jill. You know, because Jill ends up meeting back up with them. And then you don't see fucking Trevor. You're like, where the fuck did he go? Because right about yeah, the time he disappears, starts chasing. You know, chasing me too, and she tries to get fucking a Jill to hide under the bed with her phone and keep it by her, and then she climbs out the window trying to, you know, distract Ghostface and, and have him run the wrong way towards her so that Jill can escape. And by that whole time, Trevor's nowhere to be fucking found. So it's looking like he is, again, a red herring or a possible suspect as to being, you know, one of the Ghostface killers, if there is more than one, you know, in this movie. You know, he looks like he's a possibility for a killer there, so... That whole thing happens, and then you get a scene just a little bit later that's uh, very reminiscent of the first Scream movie. You get Kirby and Sidney running and hiding in the basement because they can't find Jill. Jill did not stay under the bed like she's fucking supposed to. And they go hide, and then all of a sudden there's a, you know, she turns on the porch light or looks outside, and Charlie is like, looks like he's beat the fuck up some, he's a little bloody, and he's duct taped to a fucking chair on her back porch, which is very, very, I mean, it's parallels and is a perfect, like, homage to the first Scream film when Stephen Orth dies, you know, it was the same kind of situation. So, the ghost face calls and asks questions, and she's freaking the fuck out. She answers the first one, and it's wrong, you know, about the first slasher movie, name the movie that started the slasher craze, and and uh, he gives four Tom. answers, you know. Yeah, Peep and Tom. He gives four answers, and Peep and Tom's not it. And he's like, none of the above. 
you know, with Peep and Tom, 1960-something, you know, and then all this other information. And then she's like, ask me more. Ask me another one. Please, please give me another chance. You know, don't kill him. And so he starts asking murder weapons. And I love when he gets to fucking Freddy Krueger and she answers razor fingers. That just... That's funny to me. I mean, that's what they are, but you know, it's it was just funny to hear that. And then yeah, whatever Michael Myers, they, said, they had they had something else written originally, and then whatever she said, they decided to go with. Oh, okay, yeah, it was I guess sort of ad lib there, you know. Yeah, happy accident, happy cinematic accident, or whatever. So she she answers the questions, and then he's like, "Name the final question is name the ground breaking." film that was a remake of so-and-so and she doesn't even give him a fucking chance to answer. She just starts rattling off all the remakes. And she nails several, but she misses a couple. Um, but he doesn't say anything. And she thinks she's won. She's like, yes, I've won. So she goes outside to undo the door. And right about that point, uh, you know, fucking Charlie's trying to get in before she finds it taped up, but she won't let him in because Sidney says, if you don't trust him and you don't know, don't let him in. Good advice. You know, very good advice, but, you know, still there runs the chance that, you know, he really isn't the killer or, you know, isn't anybody that she can't trust. So she runs outside after the fact, answers the que- after she answers the questions, and, and starts on taping him and said, I fucking won. I fucking said him. I won. And then she's like, I'm so sorry, this, that, and the other. And Charlie fucking stabs her. Right in the fucking yeah. bitch. Like, stabs the fuck out of her. She's like, stupid bitch, you know, you're four years and you just notice me now, you stupid bitch. And then he, like, digs the knife down into her fucking side. And then she collapses. <laughs> and all this blood starts running out, which appears to be CGI blood, actually. It looks very cgi but you don't know if she dies or not right then because you kind of just don't know. She's still writhing on the ground in pain and shit when he runs off. Sydney sees all that, and then right as she's about to run away, she gets decked by the fucking ghost face killer and gets, like, you know, hit. And then that that killer removes their mask, <laughs> and it's fucking Jill. Mm-hmm. It's Sneaky Jill. Bitch. It's Jill and fucking Charlie this whole fucking time. So we're back to the two They haven't been in too many scenes together. Yeah, true. I mean, but, you know, there's dialogue that supports the fact that they work together shortly after this, you know, because there's details and, you know, things of that nature that, that you know, would verify it. But, yeah, they, uh, it's the first time since Scream 2 that there's been two killers in a movie because, you know, last show we talked about Scream 3 and Scream 3 only had one killer, Roman Bridger, you know, uh, Sydney's half-brother. So this one has two killers, and it's you know unexpected ones. It's it's fucking it's it's Charlie and it's and it's uh, Jill, and they go into all this explanation about why, and then they pull Trevor out of a closet, which is very similar to the way they did Neil in the first film, and then fucking Jill confirms exactly what we thought. She said, uh, "You thought your boyfriend was shitty, Sydney? Here's one that fucks you." dumps you and doesn't even make you famous. And then she starts kicking the shit out of him. And he's all fucked up anyway. And then she pulls the tape off his mouth or whatever and he's like, what the fuck, Jill? I love you. And she's like, shut the fuck up already. Am I the only one that doesn't like that? <laughs> she rolls her eyes and that shit just looks psych as fuck to me. It does not look like oh, yeah. somebody would say at that moment. No, you know. but... Yeah. yeah, but she ends up after that, she shoots him 
in his, you know, private area. And he starts squalling, and and I mean, I guess I would too, right? I mean, there's a vein and like an artery that runs through there. So, ow, you know, definitely. Definitely bad for him. And then she fucking plugs him in the head. And his, his the way that they show the, the blood and, like, the, I guess the brain matter and stuff coming out the back of his head and hitting the floor is really cool looking. The spatter is really, really cool and, and very realistic looking. I like the effects of this one. Um, and then after that, we get more talk from Charlie and Sydney, or Charlie and, uh, well, Charlie, Sydney, and Jill. And, and uh, Jill and Charlie say, well, in this one, you know, the geek does get the girl, which is obviously a reference to Randy, you know, and his predicament with how it's felt about Sydney and stuff. Because in the first film and second film, you still get the feeling he still has a little bit of a thing for Sid, you know, kind of like an unrequited love sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And I think Dewey calls him all that in the second one. Uh, I'm certain he does, actually, because it's a pretty funny scene. But, yeah, so you get that explanation. And then you get a, an homage to the original two killers. You get them mentioned because Charlie says old school, just like Billy and Stu. So they get mentioned by name. And then the situation <coughs> mimics their situation because Jill and Charlie are supposed to give each other superficial wounds to make it look like Trevor was the killer. And they were just unfortunate, you know, victims but survivors while everyone else had died. So it's very, very similar to that. And then, um, so he even says some of the same thing, like, get it up, come on, girl, get it up, baby, get it up, you know, and repeat some of the same kind of shit that Stu said. And instead of stabbing him where she's supposed to, she stabs him in the fucking heart. And he's yeah. like, that's not the he's way like, he the rehearsed heart, it. That's not what we rehearsed. Yeah, he's fucking dead. Yeah. They have a little kiss beforehand where he's like, the geek gets the girl, and it's just, for whatever reason, that, that whole idea of them two being together kind of makes me gag. I don't know why. <laughs> it just does. So I was like, ugh. And then, uh, so he dies, you know, after, you know, getting getting stabbed and, and such. And I like his death, though. He kind of, like, goes into almost like a seizure. Like, his body starts convulsing. And his death is really cool looking. So then you've got Sydney, and Sydney gets, you know, she's been stabbed, and she gets stabbed again by Jill. And she's talking about how she wants to be you know, the star. She's like, you always thought you were so fucking special. You get this whole thing and she's just a little fucking wannabe, basically YouTube sensation. She wants to be immortalized <laughs> famous for doing nothing. She wants everything handed to her on a silver fucking platter. You know, which sounds like, you know, some teenagers and some young people, younger generation these days, some of them are like that. And, and that's what it sounds like. And, and just like, wow, you know, so you just don't believe it. And then, then you start to really believe it because she, she changes. And she's like, I told somebody last night that even I started to believe them. And it just, it's ridiculous. And, and this one I didn't see coming, sort of like I didn't see Roman. I kind of saw Mickey coming. I was surprised by Mrs. Loomis. I didn't really see Billy and Stu. You know, I thought maybe they were red herrings. And then with this one, I I was completely surprised that it was Jill and Charlie. You know, and... Yeah, me too. Me too. I I didn't know what to expect on this one because it's like, I mean, fuck. They they set the precedent of two killers. Two killers, then one, and now what? You get two again. And um, 
It was pretty impressive. And this whole part where Jill starts beating the shit out of herself, I fell in love with her. Yeah. Yeah. She's hot. Yeah. She I didn't think she was hot before that, but when she started doing that, I did. It says all kind of weird shit about you, bud. <laughs> yep. Yep. But, but so she does this self-mutilation thing, and she fucks herself up. It's so like Fight Club or Liar Liar, dude. It's yeah, so funny. yeah. Yeah, and I love how when she I'm stabs herself in the shower, she's like, oh, fuck. And she kicks the yeah. fucking, like, she kicks the, the table. desk or that, yeah, table. And so when Dewey gets that, like, <laughs> He, he, he and uh, Judy come in, and the whole house is fucking just, there's bodies everywhere, blood, and fucking just destruction. And Sid, and, and apparently uh, Jill gets caught it off, and if she's caught it off, all these fucking reporters are trying to talk to her, and she's going to the hospital, and you're like, wow, that's all kind of fucked up. And she's kind of like smiling and sort of enjoying her fucking like time as a star. And then she gets to the hospital, and after all that shit, she finds out that Sydney's not dead. She was supposed to have died from those wounds. She thought she would, but she's still hanging on. You know, and Dewey says, it's still touch and go. She may not remember much. You may have to help her with that. You know, and then she's like, you know, well, maybe I can write a book. You know, maybe, you know, your wife can help me. You know, since we have matching wounds, you know, and Dewey doesn't really catch that at first. And then later on, he catches, he's like talking to Gail, and she's like, how did she know that I had a wound? And then that's how she fucking stupidly outed herself as a killer. Because only the killer would know that, you know, in such an intimate place and know exactly where it was. So she runs, and so Dewey is like, shit, and runs back, and she's like, you know, trying to, he says he loves her, and she's like, get them up, you know, end it, finish it. So she goes back, and, uh, he goes back, and Dewey gets fucking hit in the head with a fucking, like, bedpan, and, and Jill beats the fuck out of him. Yeah, she does. She yeah, knocks she fucks his ass him out. Up. Yeah, it fucks him up. And then tries to fuck sit up, holes and tears of the stitches and shit. And then right after that, fucking Gail comes in and, you know, catches it and everything and sees everything, and then... Oh, God. Judy comes in later when somebody, when uh, fucking Jill shoots it. She steals the gun and tries to shoot it down. Fucking Jill, uh, Judy comes in and saves her, takes the bullet. And so you're thinking, well, shit, that's the end of Judy. And it just, that whole scene is all fucked up. But her and Sid fight, and then Sid, like, shocks her, uh, you know, after, you know, she gets Gail to come out and says, you know, can I can I at least say one more thing? And she's like, "What you want to? You know, what are you going to say? What is it? You mean, you know, what? Clear, clear." And she says, "Clear." And then right about that time, Sydney says, "Clear." And then she shocks her and shit. And then, uh, well, you think that's it for Jill? But she noticed after you know she's trying to help Dewey and 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 Gail up that Jill's coming up behind her again. And this time she fucking gets the gun. And shoots Jill right in the fucking chest. And she's like, you forgot the rule about remakes. Don't fuck with the original. You know, and that's sort of how that ends there. And then, out, uh, you know, Judy's five. She gets up and she had a bulletproof vest on. And then she fucking collapses again. So that's kind of goofy. And then, <laughs> and then Dewey and Gail kind of get out to try to recover. And outside the hospital, all the news outlets are reporting her as the hero because they have no fucking idea what transpires. And, and it kind of ends that way. 
you're like, well, they have no fucking idea what really fucking happened. And that, that, I think that's a commentary on media. You know, how they were, you know, things were reported in the news, but they're not exactly right. So I, I do, think, too. Yeah, I think that really speaks to that. But that's the end of the movie. That's how it ends, you know. It ends on a rock song, and you get your credits, and, and you know. No jump scare like there was at the end of Scream, the first one. You kind of see it flip the ghost face right before the credits start at the end of the first one, and then there's some stuff at the end of the second one, I think. But then you don't really get anything here. It just goes right to the credits. And that's the end I wonder of the movie. What happened to, I wonder what happened to Patrick Dempsey from Part 3. Yeah, right? That's kind of an unanswered question. Oh, well. I didn't need him. I didn't care about him. So. But it's just, you know, make, makes you wonder what happened there. But... Uh, I'm sure Sid probably had intimacy issues. Uh, Vic gives this movie four chainsaws. He kept getting cut off, and uh, he's driving, apparently. But anyway, he gave it four chainsaws. I give it four machetes. The only thing that I have a criticism about the movie about, really, is that there are too many survivors in this movie. Sidney, Gale, Dewey, Jill, or Judy, rather, not Jill. Uh, And you know what? Kill Judy, kill Gale, kill Dewey. Let Kirby live. I'd be happy. That's what I. That's what I want. I mean, they're looking for their new Randy all this time, and then they kill him. You know, they, yeah, they well, kill the we're not ever sure. Well, they never actually explicitly state. I watched the movie looking yes. for. They never explicitly state that Kirby dies. Yeah, I know. I know. Like Wes Craven said that she had no contract that she couldn't die on screen, so they left open the possibility that she could come back. Um, whether she will or not, or whether there will even be another movie, which I'm expecting not to be ever, because I, I don't yeah. think Nev Campbell or Courtney Cox or any of them will come back, you know, with no Wes Craven at the helm, because yeah. obviously he's passed away. Um, yeah. So this yeah. was a good capper to the series. Uh, I wish we had gotten to Screen 5, but there's no Wes Craven, and I kind of agree. I, I'd rather not see the, the name hoard out unless somebody great takes over, which probably won't happen, because it's too big a shoes to fill. So we leave with screen four, and I give the four machetes. I think it's the best sequel of the series by far. Like, I like it way better than the other two. And I like screen two pretty well. Screen three, eh. But yeah, I, I have to agree. One. I have to agree with you, which is very rare that we all agree on unanimously. But I give it four out of four uh, razor gloves. I think it's a great sequel. I think it surpassed the other two. I think it more than made up for the disappointment that Scream 3 was, and I think it was a good way to go out on the series because it it kind of paid homage, you know, it, it paid tribute to the, the groundbreaking stuff that the first Scream was. It just updated everything, you know, with the cell phones and the apps and Facebook and Twitter and, and webcams and video logs and blogs and all that shit. It, it updated everything, but it, it stayed true to the into honoring the integrity of the first film. And I give it four out of four. I honestly wasn't sure what I was going to give it when I first saw it because it had been such a long time since there had been one. And once I learned that Wes Craven and, and, you know, Williamson were back, especially Craven, I was like, well, I'll give it a chance. And I ended up loving it. I mean, it was, it was good stuff. It was a good movie. And I think it's one of the rare cases in to find a sequel in a series that is just as good as the first, because I really think it was in a lot of areas just as good as the first, especially the death, the gore. Ghostface is at his fucking best. Hell, Ghostface's voice and his man and his like attitude are better in this one, I think, than they were in any of the other ones. He's more of an asshole in this. 
His lines you are know, just perfect. cocky and vulgar. And, you know, I would have been disappointed about the killers had they not come out with Jill kills uh, kills the other killer, you know, Charlie, and then she starts acting like a psychopath. I mean, that sold the whole thing for me. It really did. Uh, it could have been disappointing otherwise, but they knew where to take it from there. They did, and, and I think it's definitely, a, you know, fitting uh, into the legacy of a man who has been mortalized, you know, basically because of his creations and, and, and his interpretation of someone else's creation. You know, he created, you know, the you know the last house on the left, the hills have eyes, Shocker, uh, you know, before Shocker, Nightmare on Elm Street, you know, created Freddy Krueger, made him, you know, because of him, Freddy Krueger has become a household name. He's mentioned in the same, you know, breath as Jason and Michael Myers and, and uh, Leatherface and, and, and Candy Man and Pinhead and Count Dracula and Wolfman and all the greats. He's mentioned right on them. And then, then he took someone else's creation, you know, Kevin Williamson, and, and realized his vision perfectly on screen, I think, you know, set, you know, at least three of the four times that we saw Ghostface. I haven't watched the TV series, but I've heard people say that it, it's not all that great. Some say it is, some say it isn't. Most of the ones that I know say it isn't, and they were fans of the film, so obviously there must be Something that doesn't gel. It's their horn out the name. I, I saw the first season of Scream, and it was okay. But, you know, if you compare it to Scream, or, it, it doesn't really have a resemblance. It's just not, you know, it's not Scream. Right. And it shouldn't right. have the name, and they're just trying to board out. They don't have the mask or anything. So it's like, why? It is what it is, though. So that's where it is off. We end up with kind of crappy TV series you know, a TV series about it. So. But, hey, uh, <clears throat> we, we may not have any more screams to talk about, but we're going to talk about the inspiration for Scream next week, uh, the Gainesville Ripper, Danny Rawlings. We're going to be talking about him next week as our main event of the month when we talk about it, you know, real-life horror or true crime, and it's going to be uh, the Gainesville Ripper, which I'm fucking hyped about. This guy was fucking nuts. Proof, yeah. So, uh, I'm going to go ahead and sign us off, Blakey, just because I'm fucking sick and ready to go to bed. You got any uh, plugs you want to put out there, buddy? Uh, you know, visit me at Facebook, Shreddy Kruger 1428, and then, you know, hit my offer page up. I need some more likes. I need some more, I need some more, you know, people that want to read my next book, and I've got a campaign, GoFundMe campaign on my Facebook pages. And, and you know, definitely check out Travis and Dick. If you're a fan of mine, and you're a fan of horror stuff, you'll love their stuff because the three of us, are, we have a meeting of minds. It's special. You know, I mean, it's, I'm not, you know, taking any credit for Travis and Dick's success at all, but I think I've sort of become the adopted little brother. You know, they always include me, and they make me feel special, and we've got like a, a bond that can't be broken. It's sealed in blood, the blood of many, many victims in horror movies. Uh, you're damn right. And we got the highest body count in this one of the series. So that was nice. We, we got the end of the perfect way. Uh, yeah, but yeah, you can, everybody can follow Travis Big Horror on Twitter. Uh, we just pretty much post links on there. Uh, Facebook.com slash Travis and Big Horror or Travis and Big Drunken Horror Adventures. Just look it up. Website, TravisBigHorror.wordpress.com. Not even going to throw out my personal plugs this week. It was fun, Blake. Uh, if we don't talk next week, we'll definitely talk down the line. Okay, buddy? All right, buddy. All right, later on, man. Later on.
With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.